So uh, this morning, we've got three chapters of Tent Nala to cover in about 30 minutes. So we're trying to go through this. And a lot of this stuff is kind of bread and butter, stuff that you already know. Uh, so we can move through some of it a little more quickly than others. So first of all, I want to start with a little bit of a pop quiz. So all right, let's see. Anna Florianovich, what's the intubating dose of vacuronium? OK, you want to phone a friend? Point one per kilo, good. All right. Well, point three will work. Point three will do it. <laughs> yeah. No. Point three will get the job done, no you question. Really didn't know LaVenley, you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dr. Query, innovating dust of ketamine. That's ever three. Just take a guess. Mm. Don't have to be right. Two per kilo. Oh, hey, fantastic. <laughs> so there's a range. Some people give you one to three, some people give you two to four. I think if you're going to intubate me, I'd rather use the higher dose than the lower dose. I don't want to remember it. So, all right, good. All right, and let's see, who's next? Uh, Amy Hagen. Oh, okay. John Epperson. Oh, can I do this one? Intubating dose of rock uranium. Oh, one. How about one? I'll take one for 500. Good job. All right, and then let's see, Phil, what's one of the contraindications of sexmocholine? Oh. Hyperkalemia. good. What's another one? Good. So crushes, burns, denervating injury, right? So yeah, right. So when is when's like the peak <laughs> incidence of complications? Yeah, it turns out probably immediately afterwards. So if somebody's like crushed under a car and they're extricated and brought in, you probably still use sucks. But it's really more like seven to ten days out that you're at your peak risk. Because you have to you, you had those, uh, that muscle has to be injured enough to, to downregulate its, or to upregulate its uh, acetylcholine receptors, and so that takes a little bit of time. But so within the first 24 hours, you're probably okay. Alrighty, good deal. So let's move on to the topics here. Whoopsie, people at home are going to love that. Okay, so COPD, we're going to talk about COPD and asthma today. COPD is the number six leading cause of death worldwide, and in the U.S., it's actually the number four cause of death because we don't die from you know, tuberculosis and diarrhea and things like they do in other parts of the countries. It's uh, more often found in men than women, but it's almost doubled in the last, probably since the 50s, it's almost doubled among women since about after World War II. Any ideas why that is? Is it the hole in the ozone layer? Yeah, right, because more women are smoking, right? Be smoking became a lot more popular after all the World War II vets came back. You know, they all started smoking in World War II, they all came back. and. Um, it, it seems like women start smoking a lot more after that. So the, the definition of COPD is an airflow obstruction that's, that's not completely reversible. Okay, so asthma, which we'll talk about in a little bit, usually is reversible with bronchodilators and steroids. COPD, you really can't, can't reverse that. It's usually a progressive disease. It's got some kind of an inflammatory component. And so as we get older, all of our lung function kind of drops off as we get older, but people with COPD, their lung function drops off a lot faster. So there's two different types. There's chronic bronchitis. This is a pathologic specimen of somebody with bronchitis. You can kind of, well, you can kind of appreciate it. I don't know if you can see it from back there, but that it's really kind of beefy red and inflamed. There's a lot of mucus. It looks kind of plugged up and nasty. Um, and so to technically meet this definition, you have to have at least three months of productive cough where you're, you're making some relatively purulent sputum. And that has to be in at least two consecutive years. So it's not probably a diagnosis we're going to be making very often in the ER. This guy, so your typical chronic bronchitis guy is the blue bloater, 
right? So they look a little cyanotic. They're usually a little heavier, um, and they usually have a lot of swelling. As, as opposed to the pink puffer, who's usually the more emphysematous version. These guys tend to be kind of skinnier. They tend to have this pursed lip breathing, and they're usually not cyanotic. So emphysema is usually destruction of the alveolar wall. And so the, the septa between the alveolar alveola get kind of destroyed. So you end up with like kind of one mega alveolus. And those septum kind of help splint the airways open. They kind of help hold the airways open. So as, as the septa get destroyed, the airways get more compliant and they, they don't have as much resistance to airflow and they tend to collapse a little bit more. And also you get decreased surface area for air exchange uh, and you don't get as much kind of air moving in and out of the lungs. So that can be a bit of a problem. One of the more famous kind of emphysema, and, and usually people with COPD have elements of, of bronchitis and elements of emphysema. It's hard, it's hard to find someone that's purely emphysematous type or purely bronchitic type. And so this is probably one of the most famous guys that died of emphysema. Johnny Carson died in, I think, 2005 from, uh, from emphysema. He was a lifelong smoker. So the hallmark, again, of COPD is airway, obstru airway obstruction. There's usually some edema, inflammation, so plugging in, and usually there's a component of bronchospasm. Risk factors, so it, it happens as you get older. You don't usually see people under 40 with COPD. Uh, it happens usually the more you smoke. There can be occupational exposure, so silica, coal, dust. Um, there are a lot of people that were building some, you know, make tunnels in like West Virginia and stuff, and they run into these, these kind of silica deposits, and they get really bad silicosis. Uh, environmental exposures and genetics. This is actually R.J. Reynolds, the guy who founded R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, and his fate would have it, he uh, died from emphysema as well. So, all right, so you can use spirometry to help diagnosis, and the, the, the measure they usually pay attention to that you might see on, on charts is their FEV1. So this is a, a curve of your forced expiratory volume. They have you take a tube and you breathe into it as hard and fast as you can. And they measure how, long it, how much you can breathe out, what volume of air you can breathe out in one second. That's your FEV1. Over your, your FVC, which is your full forced vital capacity, as much as you can possibly breathe out. And so that's usually how they kind of track COPD and the progression of COPD. FEV1 apparently is the best measure of resistance in the small airways. So usually with COPD, you have some VQ mismatch. Okay, so normally, you have a lot of ventilation in an alveolus, as well as a lot of blood flow. And when both of those things are happening, you oxygenate pretty well. The problem is with COPD, you get, you either get, you get places that are plugged up with, you know, mucus and bronchus sloughing and all kinds of crap. And so then you get perfusion without ventilation. So this is essentially a shunt, right? This is deoxygenated blood coming from the right side of the heart, going back to the left side of the heart without ever having picked up any oxygen. So that makes you cyanotic. Or you get areas where you're not getting much blood flow because it's hypoxic. So this alveolus is not ventilating well and not oxygenating well. So this is kind of a hypercapnic alveolus with a low oxygen tension. And because the lungs tend to shunt blood to places where there's oxygen, it won't shunt blood to this alveolus. Okay, it'll shunt blood away from a hypoxic alveolus. So this is you get uh, ventilation without perfusion here. And so that's, uh, that's kind of how these people end up being cyanotic and hypoxic. Does that make sense? Does everybody remember that from med school, sort of? Okay, stop. I know I'm going kind of fast, so. 
All right. So far as people that are having, and you guys all know this, people that are having COPD exacerbations, they say, you know, I'm wheezing, I'm coughing. Uh, you can see that they're, they're breathing harder. They have an increased work of breathing. So using the accessory muscles in their neck, you can see some intercostal retractions, some subcostal retractions. They usually have this pursed lip breathing. What's that all about? Why are they doing that? Right, it's auto-peep. So they're, by, by breathing out against closed lips or closed glottis, so they're either breathing like, or like, they're closing their glottis to create more peep, and they're trying to blow their alveoli back open. They're trying to blow open those terminal bronchi and keep the alveoli open. It can have a long expiratory phase because, you know, with, with obstructive disease, that's the problem. You can breathe in just fine, but you can't breathe out. So it takes them a lot longer to get rid, to, to breathe out, to ventilate. You get kind of a barrel chest from the air trapping, again, because it's a, an obstructive disease. And they can look a little plethoric, especially people that are chronically a little hypoxic. You know, their, their hemoglobin will get up to 17, 18, you know, and they'll start looking pretty, pretty red through the face. People that are shunting a lot, people that, that have a lot of dead space in their lungs where you're getting a right-to-left shunt through there, will look a little cyanotic. You only have to deoxygenate 5 grams per deciliter of hemoglobin. So if your hemoglobin's 18, and only 13 grams of that is saturated with oxygen, you're going to look cyanotic, okay? And still, you're probably oxygenating fine. There's still probably enough oxygen for your tissues. A lot of these people lose weight because they're, they can't, you know, they're, a lot, they're, they're working a lot harder to breathe, so just breathing for them is exercise. And so they can't take in enough calories to keep their weight up. And also because of the chronic inflammation in their lungs, I mean, it takes a lot of protein and a lot of energy to, to try and be constantly repairing your lungs. And they can develop core pulmonale, so they can get, you know, uh, pulmonary artery hypertension because of the, the shunt and the hypoxia. So how do you treat chronic exacerbations? Again, this isn't something we do very often down in the ER, but you really encourage a healthy lifestyle, so you want to make sure that they're not smoking. You know, for the love of God, don't smoke when you have, when you have this. Um, you want to make sure they're getting a good diet, they're getting plenty of nutrition to help, again, with the lung inflammation and repair. You want to make sure that all these people get a pneumococcal vaccine, okay? And I know this is something that we kind of gloss over in the ER and something we don't pay attention to. And you ask a nurse to get a vaccine, they kind of roll their eyes, say, oh, we got to get that from pharmacy. And, but that saves lives, okay? That saves lives more than antibiotics probably in these guys. Make sure that every single one of these people has a pneumococcal vaccine. <clears throat> and then sometimes these people are on HOMO2, and the indications for HOMO2 are if they, they have a hard time keeping their SATs up to about 90% at rest. So, and that's, again, that's not something we'll probably be handing out, but just people that come in on oxygen, you know that they're chronically a little hypoxic. So then you can use these different drugs like beta agonists and ipratrobium steroids for symptomatic relief. That turns out that these don't actually improve your survival at all. These don't really change mortality much. They're purely symptomatic. They just make you feel better. So the only thing that really changes mortality out of all these things is a pneumococcal vaccine and not smoking. So, all right, so acute exacerbations. This is where we kind of kick it into high gear. This is, this is our realm. So acute exacerbations are usually caused by infection. Like, probably at least 60% of the time, it's some sort of super infection. You know, because they've got all this, all this mucus sitting around. It's hard for your immune system to get into the mucus, but it's, and it's a great culture medium for these bugs. Some of these people can throw PEs, especially if they're not moving around much, they're just kind of sitting around breathing. So uh, they're, they're a little bit more high risk for PE. Bronchospasm, cardiac insult. So this is a lot of work to, for your heart, for the, especially for the right side of your heart, to have to pump blood through this kind of crapped up lung field. So well, these people can have MIs. And then if they're put on medications. So I don't, I don't know how many times you guys have seen someone with COPD that's on a beta blocker. 
and they come in and they get sicker because they, they've got more bronchospasm. So just be careful of that. And then different exposures. So anything that irritates your lungs, exposure to smoke, exposure to dust, exposure to, I don't know, cats, sometimes irritates people. So uh, anything that they're allergic to or is irritating to the lungs can, can make them worse. Some perfumes can do it for some people. Sinus layer test. Chest X is really helpful, not so much in diagnosing COPD, because you can have a whole spectrum of chest X-rays in COPD. In fact, in early COPD, chest X-ray is usually pretty normal. Okay, and Dean, correct me if I step out of line here. Uh, but the, the thing it's really helpful for is ruling out, you know, complications. So especially as people with emphysema, they've got these big old blebs in their lung, and it doesn't take much for those things to pop. So it's a good idea to get chest X-ray to rule out pneumothorax. It's a good idea to get chest X-ray to make sure there's not a low bar pneumonia or you know, uh, doesn't look like they've got tuberculosis or something like that. So you can see this guy, or gal, probably a guy, has, I mean, you can see he's got really scarred lungs, probably a lot of blebs, actually a chest tube in this side, so he must have had something else going on besides just COPD exacerbation. So ABG, you know, I, I guess my gut reaction to ABGs is that I think they hurt, and it's not very nice to do to people, and try and avoid it. But in people that are really having a pretty serious COPD exacerbation, it's important to assess their, how well they're ventilating. You get a pretty good idea how well they're oxygenating, just based on their pulse ox. But their ventilation can change. If they're starting to get real hypercapnic, that's probably important to know about. You can get a CBC to rule out anemia, see where their hemoglobin is. And then I, I don't know if lights really help you or not. I suppose if they're on diuretics or something like that, it's a good idea. So acute treatment, again, you guys know most of this. Beta agonists, take care. Yes, sir? Yeah, the only time the electrolyte, electrolytes may help you is to check potassium. Someone's taking the boatload albuterol, all part of their like, regimen if they're having exacerbation. Someone's taking the boatload albuterol, that can make you like hypokalemic, and next thing you know, you're looking at something with a K of like 2.8. That's true, that's a good point. Right, yeah, if they're on diuretics, it's definitely a good idea. That's a good point, though. The, you do have to watch with hypokalemia, mm -hmm. with uh, the beta agonists. Yeah. So, so beta agonists are kind of one of the mainstays of treatment, probably beta agonists and steroids and antibiotics. So beta agonists help with the bronchospasm. You can use anticholinergics, so like ipratropium, and that, that actually helps to dilate the larger airways by interfering with the muscarinic receptors. Uh, I had to look that up, by the way. Uh, if, they're <laughs> if, they're, if they're coughing up a lot of sputum that looks purulent, then they should be on antibiotics. Okay? And, and it, depending on who you talk to and, and what you read, they, they all kind of give different guidelines for uh, sputum characteristics and volumes. But, I mean, if they say, look, this is more sputum than I'm usually coughing up, and yeah, it's a little nastier than it normally is, I'd start them on antibiotics. So steroids, I think, are important uh, to help decrease the inflammation. And then non-invasive ventilation, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on today, so I'm not going to beat this over the head. But this is... Uh, this has prevented a ton of, I mean, we hardly ever intubate these guys anymore. And, and even, gosh, probably even five years ago, these people got intubated a lot. So non-invasive ventilation is really very helpful. And then oxygen. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So yeah, you always hear with people with COPD, God, don't give them oxygen. Don't give them oxygen because they'll stop breathing, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of people with COPD, they're, 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 they're so used to being hypercapnic that the hypercapnia doesn't drive their ventilatory response anymore, right? They, they kind of reset their, their CO2 thermostat, and they can tolerate hypercapnia a lot better than you or I could, right? Because 
because you know if Thomas starts holding his breath and he starts feeling like he's got to take a breath and he has to breathe and he starts to sweat, it's not the hypoxia, right? You guys have all put uh, pulse oxes on your fingers and held your, held your breath for as long as you could, right? How, how low can you go? Anybody ever gotten down to 94? Are you telling me I'm the only one that's done this? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. All right. So I'm proud to say that I can. <laughs> I'm proud to say I can hold my breath until my until I get down to 92 percent, and that was really really hard. So, but it wasn't hypoxia that was making me want to breathe. It was my is my PCO2, my PaCO2, and so. But in these guys, your PaCO2 does not doesn't drive your respiratory uh, system at all. It's all it's all hypoxia. So, if you have somebody that comes in that's used to being hypoxic and they have hypoxia driving them to breathe and all of a sudden you give them a bunch of oxygen, there's a chance they could stop breathing. Because all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I'm not hypoxic anymore, I don't need to breathe. So you do need to, you do need to keep an eye on them. Having said that, if somebody comes in with SATs in the 80s, you should get their SATs up to at least 90. I mean, that's just like, that's just being decent. You know, that's just taking care of people. So, but, but watch them. Watch for a decreased respiratory drive. Watch for signs of respiratory acidosis. Watch for mental status changes. And probably get an ABG on these people. See where they're at. Any questions about that? So I, and, and I think it really depends on who you talk to. You know, when I rotated in the MICU, people would get super uptight about this. Yeah. You know, and they, they say, well, why are you putting them on a nasal cannula? Because you can't control the FiO2 very well on a nasal cannula. You should have them on a mask. You know, because, I mean, people get really worked up about it. But, but I agree. I've never, I got to say that I've not seen anybody stop breathing when I put them on oxygen. Has anybody ever seen anybody stop breathing when, Anna, you have just once? Yeah. Okay, what'd you do? He's going to stop breathing anyway. <laughs> I think it was just a bad timing of events until the harder part was like, see, that's why I'm Right. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, maybe, I, maybe he's going to quit breathing regardless, huh? All right. So we'll talk just briefly about BiPAP and CPAP because I know that that's going to be on the discussion today. Um, so the nice thing about this, this non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is it helps kind of keep the airways open. It increases the end expiratory pressure. It keeps the alveoli open. It keeps the terminal bronchioles open. And it allows for better air exchange. Okay, so a lot of, a lot of the reasons these people can't ventilate is, again, because their terminal bronchioles are collapsing. And so they can breathe in, but they can't expire. If you can stent those terminal bronchioles open with a little bit of end expiratory pressure, then they can, they can ventilate a little bit better. So it also let them rest. So if they've, been, if they've been trucking along and working so hard to breathe for 24, 48 hours, you, know, you get tired. And, and a lot of people just quit breathing because they can't keep breathing anymore. They're just tired. And so this lets them rest. There's a couple of things that predict failure on BiPAP and CPAP, though, that I think are important to, to realize. And, and because anytime you put people on this, these kind of non-invasive ventilation things, you have to be ready to go to the next step and, and innovate them. The, if people have pneumonia, though, if they have lower airway disease, like, uh, yeah, like pneumonia, uh, this may not help much. If they have a ton of secretions and they're trying, you know, they've got snot coming out everywhere and they're hacking up these monster goobers, all you're going to be doing is blowing all that snot and goobers down into their lungs. So they could potentially get worse. If they have an altered level of consciousness, if they're, if they're loaded, if they're drunk, or if they're on drugs, or if they're just so hypercarbic that they're in a coma, they're not going to be able to work with the machine, right? And so they're probably not going to do real well on non-invasive ventilation. And then the same, you know, if, they, if they're just not, yeah, they can't entrain the machine. So. What is PNN? 
pneumonia. So that's my own, that's my own little burrish abbreviation. That's what we call an unapproved abbreviation. That is an unapproved, yeah. <laughs> You're not from JCO, are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. All right, so pneumonia, secretions, altered level of consciousness, inability to entrain the machine. All right, so then you got to figure out a disposition. So if, if, you, if you see these people in the ER and they come in looking pretty sick, you work on them for an hour or two and they look like a million bucks, that's easy, right? If they come in looking pretty sick and they just continue to get sicker besides, despite your best efforts, that's pretty easy too. Um, so, but if you, it, it's people that fall kind of in the middle that, that are difficult. So if they don't improve, even though you've given them a bunch of albuterol, you've given them some steroids, given them some antibiotics, if, they, if they're getting worse, if they have really severe COPD to start with, you know, if they're like a pulmonary cripple to start with and they come in with an exacerbation, then, then you're going to admit them. If they have a lot of comorbidities, so if they have heart failure, you know, they've had like 15 stents and they've got, you know, a terrible ticker, um, they, you know, have a bunch of others, if they're diabetic, you should really think about admitting those people. If you don't really know what's going on, sometimes it's hard to figure out. Chris Hogarth and I were working on a guy for like four hours yesterday before we finally figured out he probably had COPD. You know, sometimes it's hard to know. Is it, is it heart failure? Is it, you know, an atypical pneumonia that's just not showing up on the chest x-ray? Um, is it asthma? Is it COPD? It's not, it's not easy to know. So if you're not really sure what's going on and they're still not getting better, I probably would admit them to kind of help sort things out. And if they don't have any social support. So, you know, one of the things you always tell people is, hey, go home, but if things get worse, come back. But you need to make sure that they have a car, they have a way to get back, that there's gas in the car, that there's somebody that can stay with them in case they get hypercapnic and start to get a little loopy, they can keep an eye on them. So they need to have, you know, some, some resources. They need to have good follow-up. So if they say, look, I don't have a doctor, and I can't get into the eye care clinic for the next six months, it's probably not close enough follow-up. Okay, so they, they, you need to make sure that they have good, good social support if you're going to be sending them home. All right. This is actually a predictor of failure of BiPAP and CPAP 2s. These guys, I, I, these are just like some Russian respiratory technicians. I was just looking for good pictures of BiPAP on the, the web the other day. <laughs> these are some guys in like a Russian hospital. They didn't have much to do, I guess. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about asthma. Yeah. Um, a comment and a question. When we were at uh, Essentials this week, they were talking about the BiPAP CPAP. We were saying even with even with altered level of consciousness, mm -hmm. you go ahead and try it. I, see if it works. Yeah. Because sometimes you can get these people, if you if they're just hypercarbic, you can get them back to, to right. a state of right. know, pretty good sensorium and then they can entrain the machine. I agree. Well. Um, and then the other thing, I was just curious, when you're when you're ventilating, positive pressure ventilating these patients, like how careful do you have to be with your pressures and stuff as far as blebs and pneumos? Well, we're going to talk about that in a second, but okay. um, yeah, I think so that's a couple of good points. Absolutely, if people are starting to get a little loopy because they're hypercarbic, because their PaCO2 is like 90, you, know, you might be able to blow enough of that off and, and pull them back. But you, do, you just have to be ready to, to intervene and to, to RSI them if you need to. Um, so I think when you, when you start, I've had a couple of COPD patients now that you know, have had kind of this subacute exacerbation where over the, next, you know, over the last week or so they've just not been feeling well and it's really hard for them to breathe, and they haven't been getting up and around, they probably haven't been drinking enough, and so they come in, and they're a little bit dehydrated, and you put them on BiPAP or CPAP, and all of a sudden they get super hypotensive. And you don't know if you blew a pneumo, or if you're just impeding you know, venous return. And, and so it's, it's easy to just take them off the machine. You know, sometimes you can even press on their chest a little bit to help decrease, you know, just do a little AP compression of the chest, 
and help deflate the lungs a little bit and see if their pressure comes back up. And then, you know, you need to tank them up before you put them back on, on the BiPAP. But you, and then, you know, you have to examine them, see if you think they have a pneumo. Uh, if, if they're on positive pressure ventilation, the chances of developing not only a pneumo, but a tension pneumo go way up. And so you have to have a, a real high, kind of, you just have to watch them carefully. It's not the kind of people you're like, yeah, throw them on BiPAP, you know, back in room 11. And then you go start taking care of other stuff. You gotta, you gotta be right there. Especially with people that are kind of having borderline mental status, you put them on the bypass, if they were to vomit, that's the thing, sometimes their stomach is distended, if they're not awake enough to be able to work the mask off. Like one of, one of my like kind of overrules is they can't take their own mask off. Or, or, and I don't usually don't put right. it on bypass. If they don't have the ability to reach up or have enough brain power to do that. Yeah. Because you can imagine if you vomit it up into a bypass mask. <laughs> <laughs> that would suck. Yeah, it's not just nasty. It's like dangerous. Yeah. So, all right. So we're going to talk... Uh, is there anything else about CFP? No, I'm not disagreeing. We're going to talk a little bit about asthma now. Um, so asthma is the most common chronic disease of kids. It affects about 10% of kids uh, around the U.S. Uh, and somewhere between 5 and 10% of the, the entire population. Uh, in the last 20 years, asthma visits have gone up 36%. Actually, in the last 15 years, have gone up about 36%. So more and more people are coming in with asthma. And actually, until about 2005, deaths from asthma were going up and up and up and up and up. And so it's not real clear why that was or why it's kind of leveled off lately. But it's, um, you know, it's a stupid reason to die because it's totally treatable disease. And, and it kills young people. It kills like young, healthy, productive members of society, not just like the, the people that aren't doing anything. So there's a, there's a pretty wide clinical spectrum of disease that we'll talk about. So this is asthma prevalence. You can see that Starting in 1980, going to about 1995, it was increasing. In 1997, they started using a different questionnaire. So that's why the, the slide is a little different. But they think current asthma prevalence is somewhere uh, up around 80%. And so what, what they were asking was, have you ever you know, been diagnosed with asthma? Have you ever had an asthma attack? So the, the prevalence of asthma attacks is somewhere around 50% per year. So it turns out that asthma is one of those diseases that can kill you, but it's also one of those diseases that if you know what it is and how to manage it and what you're doing, it pretty much doesn't, can't, doesn't limit you at all. There's nothing you can't do. So 15% of the, the Olympians in the 1996 games said they had asthma, and 10% of them were on like controlling asthma, I mean, had enough asthma, bad enough asthma, that they were on kind of chronic asthma meds. <laughs> some, some people call them steroids, but they said yeah, exactly. It's an anabolic steroid. No. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, it's the only time I've ever heard of asthma being treated with erythropoietin. But, you know. So, but it really is, I mean, you can, if, if you control your asthma, it doesn't have to limit you at all. Um, and so it's, I think this is something that's important to stress to people when they come in with exacerbations, especially people that come in again and again and again with exacerbations. Was, hey, you know, I can tell you're feeling pretty sick from this and, and it's limiting your activities and whatever. We need to get on top of this. You need to learn a little, little bit more about asthma and let, let me teach you about it. So asthma is reversible, is defined as having a re reversible airway obstruction. Something in the last five or ten years that's really been, well really the last five years that's really been stressed is that asthma is really a disease of chronic inflammation. Okay, so your lungs are chronically inflamed. It's not just you have a little bit of bronchospasm every now and then. Oh yeah, and there's some inflammation. Really, it's you've got a ton of inflammation in your lungs, and that makes your lungs a lot more likely to spasm. 
And so recently, kind of the treatment for asthma has really started focusing a little bit more on control of this chronic inflammation because this chronic inflammation can eventually lead to fibrosis of the lungs and thickening of the basement membranes, the alveoli, and worse air exchange. These people will end up on oxygen at some point if, uh, if you don't take care of them. So symptoms, dyspnea, wheezing, cough. Uh, I think there's a lot of asthma that I think goes unrecognized when you, people just have cough variant asthma or asthma that just manifests as a nighttime cough. It's, it's one of the top three reasons for people to be up all night coughing is, is asthma. Asthma, post-nasal drip, and, and reflux are the, kind of the big three. So uh, the National Heart, Blood, and Lung Institute came up with this asthma classification uh, that, that I, th I think is actually uh, not that difficult to use. So. They, they classify it as, as mild, moderate, or severe, and then there's, the mild intermittent is basically like, yeah, I got asthma, but I only use my inhaler like once a month. It never really bothers me. And then the, the mild persistent is, yeah, I use my albuterol, you know, a couple, three, four times a week, uh, maybe a couple times a, at night. And, and basically, anybody that has persistent asthma should be on an inhaled corticosteroid, okay? So if you talk to somebody that comes in for an asthma exacerbation, you say, how often do you use your albuterol? They say, well, probably three, four times a week. I mean, that doesn't sound bad, but it's probably bad enough that they should be on an inhaled corticosteroid because uh, you, need, you need to control the inflammation in the lungs. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So there's asthma mimics. We kind of talked about some of this. So CHF, if they have a foreign body in their airway, if they have, like, swallowed it, if they inhale a Tonka truck and it's in the right main stem bronchus and they're, they're wheezing, that's something really you always have to think about that, especially in kids that come in, you know, 12, 16 months old. Uh, they can look exactly like they have asthma. And I, I've been fooled by this before. My parents are like, yeah, you know, it's just asthma. They said, well, you know, they choke on anything. Well, they did kind of choke on something yesterday, but I think they got it out. And then sure enough, they've got, you know, like a Lego in their, their left main stem bronchus. So uh, aspiration, any kind of a mass. So sometimes you see this with people with eobronchogenic carcinoma or things like that. It's probably not something you're going to be diagnosing very often in the ER. But this is something I see a lot, actually, or I think I see a lot, <laughs> at least is vocal cord dysfunction. So the classic story for vocal cord dysfunction is usually kind of a type A, high-functioning person. Um, and, and the classic story would be like a, a, a teenage female that's in like a soccer game. And they're going to, they're, you know, they're driving, they're going to go shoot for the goal. And all of a sudden, they start having a hard time breathing. Okay, so usually it's, it's usually kind of younger women uh, in high-intensity situations, kind of overachievers. And the way they describe it is, I have a hard time breathing in. And so they don't really wheeze when they breathe out, but they come in complaining of wheezing. And so, but they, they get this kind of vocal cord dysfunction when where they try to breathe in, their vocal cords actually shut. They actually adduct when they try and breathe in instead of open up. And nobody really knows why that happens, but it, it usually doesn't respond to albuterol. Usually they feel a little bit better by the time you get to the ER. And uh, usually, and they'll give you this history if you ask carefully. They'll say, you know, actually it's a lot harder to breathe in than to breathe out. I think I've even had this happen to me before, and, and um, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable, and it does feel a lot like asthma. And you know, I sit there and jam on my inhalers, and I uh, wouldn't get any better. But then kind of stop to think about it, like, oh yeah, I'm having a hard time breathing in. And so a lot of times what they do is speech therapy for this, and it, it usually works, and people usually outgrow it. But uh, if, if you're treating somebody for the asthma and they're not getting any better, that's just something to think about. And so I ask them, is it hard to breathe in or is it hard to breathe out? And then multiple PEs can also Mimic asthma, but I just thought this was, I don't know. <laughs> what, what's going on there? I think it's kind of funny because a lot of people blame their asthma on cats. 
Maybe, maybe he's allergic to people. I don't know. So, all right. So symptoms, it turns out, are a really pretty poor indicator of how severe your asthma is. People that are sick all the time, people that are chronically spasmed, chronically inflamed lungs, I think they don't, they kind of get used to it. and They don't realize that they feel like crap, okay? And so if you ask them, you say, well, you know, have you been, do you like running around with the other kids or do you play sports? And say, no, I really don't. Well, why not? Well, I can't breathe that well. Turns out they kind of self-limit their activities without even thinking about it. They won't do things because they know it's going to cause problems breathing or because they know they're not going to be able to breathe. And so, and you, you do like a peak flow on them and it's crap. They're like at 50% they're predicted. And they say, well, I'm not really feeling that bad, doc, but it's because they're used to feeling that crappy all the time. And so, um, if you can get them feeling better, all of a sudden, they're going to be like, it's like my brother when he started wearing glasses. He, you know, he went to the, the eye doctor and he put some glasses on. He's like, I had no idea that I couldn't see that well. I don't know if anybody else had that experience, but, you know, because it's, it's such an insidious onset that you don't even realize it's happening. And all of a sudden you get glasses and you're like, oh man, it's a whole new world. You know, I can read. And so, um, <laughs> you know, it just, so, so asthma is kind of the same way. And so your symptoms are, if you ask people how sick they're feeling, that's really not a very good indicator of how bad the disease is. Um, you know, you can kind of look at their work of breathing and how well they're able to talk. Some people even modify their speech patterns because they know they won't be able to get a full sentence out, right? And so people think, well, they're just kind of quiet. They're sort of the strong, silent type. But really, it's they're the asthmatic, I can't breathe type. So <laughs> altered mental status is, an endo, is, a, is a, a sign of kind of end organ hypoxia. So that's, that's a big deal. Uh, tachycardia is bad. Bradycardia is worse, right? So usually when you have an attack, you're kind of tachycardic. Start getting bradycardic, then that's, that's really not good. And then PEFR stands for peak expiratory flow rate. So we'll talk about that. So you, this is actually an excellent indicator of asthma severity. So you should be able to predict your maximum peak expiratory flow rate based on your age and your height and your sex. And there's charts everywhere. There's charts in the Harriet Lane handbooks. There's charts online. You know, and, and we can even print some of these out. It'd be easy. And so it's a, it's a bedside test that you can do. And you just have it's a, it's a, Have you guys all seen these down in the ER? Has everybody seen these? OK. These have them breathe into this thing. And they breathe as hard and as fast as they can. And you see how high they can push that little dial. So if they're at 80 to 100% predicted, it's, it's not really that bad of an attack. That's not such a big deal. If they're, if they're 50 to 80% predicted, that's, a, that's a, a moderate attack. And then a severe attack would be less than 50% predicted. And again, a lot of these people say, you know, I'm not really feeling that bad, doc. Except they say that in like three sentences because they can't spit it all out. Um, so, and the nice thing about this is you can monitor therapy. So you, you do a peak flow. And then you give them like a triple neb and check back with them and their peak flow has gone up by like 100 points. And you know you're moving in the right direction. It makes you feel better about sending them home at some point or it makes you feel better about what you're doing. And the other thing they can do is they can monitor this at home. So they can check their peak flow, you know, once a day, twice a day and kind of see how they're doing. That gives them a lot of good information to take back to their doctor. Well, it's, I agree that it's better if you have a baseline. There's no question. Uh, but you should, but the, the, they do have pretty good yeah, they do have a pretty good chart that says, look, if you're six foot two and you're, you know, 25 years old, this is what your peak flow ought to be. And that's probably within, I don't know, you know, 10, 20% of accurate. And so, but the, the real nice thing about it is monitoring their progress as you, you know, give them therapy. And, and so you may not be able to get a baseline for a week after that, you know, until they're really kind of all the way through this exacerbation. But, but it at least gives you somewhere to start. So... And I, I, I got to say, I'm a big believer in it. I think it really is helpful. And 
And you know, if nothing else, it, it's a chance for you to kind of talk to them about what asthma is, how it can be kind of insidious, how they can help to control it. I mean, it's a good sort of education tool. And it's something they can see. You know, something they can, they can watch their progress. Yeah? How successful are you with peak clothes with, with young kids? Like, you know, it's, it's hard under age five or so. Okay. You, know, you can try to like blow out the candles and things like that. But it, it, is, it is pretty hard under about age five. Yeah. So ancillary studies. So chest, if they say, look, I've got asthma. This feels exactly like my regular asthma attack. I don't have any fevers. You know, I don't think you're going to get much out of a chest x-ray. You know, if mom says, yeah, they were chewing on, you know, GI Joe head, and then all of a sudden it was gone, you know, then probably a chest x-ray is a good idea. But, uh, or if they have a fever, you think they might have, they have a productive cough, you think they might have a pneumonia, then I'd probably get a chest x-ray. ABGs, I think in asthma, really are seldom indicated, okay? I think if they're really sick, if you know that this person's getting admitted and they're probably going to the ICU, then an ABG is probably a good idea. And actually, if they're, if they're sick enough to get admitted for their asthma, I probably would think about an ABG. Because if they have a PCO2 of 35 or 38, that's usually a pretty bad sign, right? People that have asthma should be a little hypocapnic because they're, they're breathing hard, they're breathing fast. If, if they're becoming normal capnic or even hypercapnic, it means they're going into respiratory failure, they're tiring out, they're not able to ventilate well, and that's pretty bad, that's a pretty bad prognosticator. So if they're sick enough to get admitted for their asthma, you should think about an ABG. And I think in kids, a VBG probably is a fair approximation. I don't know, I just don't like sticking kids in the artery. I think it's, I think it's mean. CBC, I'm not really sure if that's going to help you out much, right? Your white count's going to be elevated if you're on steroids or if you're stressed, you know, if you're physiologically stressed. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't know that CBC's going to offer up much information. And electrolytes, again, you can, if they're, if they're really jamming on their albuterol, they could be a little bit hypokalemic. But um, I don't know, I tend not to draw blood on, on asthma folks. All right. Risk factors for death. So this is, this is actually, so like if you're sleeping, this is probably part you need to wake up for. So history of sudden severe attacks. There's people that have like this ambush asthma, right? I'm feeling great, no problems in the world. All of a sudden, bam, they're sick. And they're real sick. And those are the people that die, okay? People that die from asthma, and they're usually young black males. They're, they're feeling great. They're doing their thing. And maybe they're actually having a moderate attack, but again, they're sort of unaware of their symptoms. And all of a sudden, it gets worse. And nobody knows why this happens. You know, there's, there's some, uh, certain subsidies people that have what's called allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, but that's pretty rare. Those people get really sick. But there's probably some kind of allergic component to that. Um, but but those, those people are people you've got to watch out for. So if, if, they, if they give you that history, hey, I was feeling like a million bucks, and all of a sudden, within the space of seconds, literally, I almost quit breathing, those people probably need to come in. If they spend any time in the ICU, if they've ever been intubated, uh, that's usually, they have pretty bad asthma, and you need to really have a high index, <coughs> or a, a low threshold, I guess, for admitting them. They have more than three ER visits in a year, or more than two admissions in a year for asthma, that's that's pretty uh, fair indicator of severe asthma. Or if they're going through two albuterol canisters a month or more. I mean, they're, they're using a lot of albuterol then. So that's always a good question to ask, is how many, how many canisters of albuterol have you gone through? Uh, if they have difficulty perceiving symptoms like we talked about. So psychosocial factors, you know, especially I worry about this in kids. If their parents just aren't real tuned in, if they're not real aware of what's going on, that, that worries me a lot. You know, again, if they don't have a way to get back to the ER, if they're in an environment where there's a lot of allergens and, and they can't, um, 
you know, they can't really be removed from that environment. And when I was in North Carolina, we actually had, DHS took a kid away from some parents because they just kept smoking. They are just like blowing smoke in the kid's face. You know, a kid was like, she's like four months old. She'd been, she'd been hospitalized three times for asthma and they wouldn't quit smoking. And so we finally took the kid away. So, um, you know, those are all things to kind of, kind of think about. And the thing, the thing that I always love, and I, I think I used this yesterday, is when people have kids with asthma and they're like, well, we don't smoke around them. And so, well, what's that mean? Well, we, we make sure we only smoke in the kitchen. I'm like, that's kind of like peeing in one corner of the swimming pool. I mean, the, the smoke all circulates through there. That's one of my... So, um, so make sure that they're not smoking around people with asthma. And then again, a lot of comor comorbid diseases. All right. So treatment. All right. I'm sorry, Zim. I'm, I'll, I'll move faster. So <laughs> bed agonists are kind of your, your mainstay of rescue therapy, right? So albuterol. There's a... Um, there's a, there's a, a long-acting albuterol called salmeterol, okay, and this is just uh, chemically changed a little bit so that it, it lasts about 12 hours instead of four hours. This is not good for acute treatment, okay? And in fact, it may be dangerous for chronic treatment because this down-regulates your beta receptors. And so then when you need to go to albuterol for rescue treatment, it, they may, it may not work as well, okay? So uh, make sure you're, you're only using albuterol. There's Zopinex out there as well. I don't want to show any bias. Um, and I'm not being paid by any of the drug companies, but Zopinex is crap, essentially. I mean, it works, but it's not worth the money. It doesn't, it, there's, no, there's no serious cardiotoxicity from albuterol. Nobody's ever been hurt by albuterol. They do get a little tachycardic sometimes, they do get a little jittery, but it's never hurt anybody. Right. Well, so here's the thing. I mean, albuterol is something like 79 cents a vial or something, yeah. and Zopinex is like four bucks. I mean, it's not, it's not generic. Right, and the only difference is this is Zopinex is the L isomer of albuterol. It's only the active isomer. It's just like uh, Protonix and Prevacid. Right, and so it's it's really just a vehicle to make the drug companies more money. Um, so, you know, when you can, be nice, save these folks a buck. And uh, so the other thing I want to say is the spacer. So you actually get better lung deposition with spacers than you do with nebs. They've done all kinds of studies with radioactive isotopes, and, and you get much better lung deposition with a spacer than you do with a nebulizer. Having said that, if, you're not gonna, if, you're, if, if they're not going to use the spacer because it's too bulky or whatever, I'd rather have them on a neb. Because even though you get better lung deposition with the spacer, if you just use the MDI, almost all of it goes onto the tongue or the roof of your mouth. So, but the spacer will get into the lungs even better than the nebs. So, um, even with people with really bad exacerbations, yeah, they've... They've done study. One of the guys I used to work with in North Carolina did a lot of these studies. As long as you have a good mask fit, you still get, get excellent deposition with the spacers, even in an acute attack. So, How young can you use a mask? Like, down to what age can you As long as they, they have masks even for little infants. I mean, they've got them for cats, for crying out loud. So they've got, they've got it's about the same size, actually, as that cat mask. And so uh, you just you put two to four squirts in the, in the, the chamber. And then you put the mask on there, and it's got a little one-way valve, so when they breathe out, you can see the valve move. And so you put two to four squirts in the chamber, you hold it over their mouth, and then you watch and count five times that that valve moves, and you're done. And you get better, you, you really, honestly, get better lung deposition that way. Can we get that? Does RT help us fit those for, like, kids down in the ED instead of... I, you know, we, I know we have them down in the ED. I don't know, to be honest with you, who is responsible for fitting them. I don't know if we have them for infants down there or not. Yeah, together. we do. I, we I, do? I've spent two this month already. Okay. The, the nice thing about this too is they, you know, once they use it in the ER, they can take it home with them. Mm -hmm. So, 
you don't have to worry about them being without. So, all right. So start. Yeah. About that. Yeah. That chamber is causes the aerosol to be distributed in a greater volume, so they get better deposition in the depths of the lungs. Do you go pump, let them breathe it in, pump, let them breathe it in, or do you go one, two, three, four, and let them breathe that in? Yeah. So you, you put two to four squirts in here, and then you put it on their face <laughs> and let them breathe it in five times. So, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, you have to make sure that uh, these, if they wash these out, they let them dry because otherwise the stuff just sticks to the side of the you know, it just electrostatically sticks to the side of the, the spacer. All right, so steroids. So you guys know about steroids. So in kids, it's one or two milligrams of prednisone, uh, and in adults, it's 60 to 125 milligrams. If they can't tolerate IV, it's 60 to 125 milligrams of methylprednisone. Um, the, the one thing I, I will say in kids is that the low dose works just as well as the high dose, and you have a little less, like, hyperactivity and side effects with the lower dose. So <coughs> I'm pretty much going with that all the time now. Anticholinergics again, ipratropium is kind of the, the go-to for the anticholinergics. They used to use atropine, actually, and uh, I didn't make people feel too good. <laughs> Couldn't pee, had a you know, dry mouth. So, um, and again, it, this is a good, this is additive with the, the albuterol. Now, it's been shown that this can actually decrease your admission rate by something like 10%. It's not a huge decrease, but once they're already admitted, it, it doesn't seem to help much with ongoing inpatient therapy. All right, magnesium, so this is really only useful in severe asthma. So if they're sick enough that you're starting an IV, uh, then you can use it. It may reduce bronchospasm by up to 10%. And then there's other things you can use. There's Heliox, so this is a mixture of usually 20%, I want to say there's 20% oxygen actually, and 80% uh, helium. And you can titrate it up to 50-50. The, the one downside to this is that it's, it's a little bit hard to administer. Uh, and you can only go up to an FiO2 of 50%. So if they're really hypoxic, that doesn't work too well. Halothane actually is a bronchodilator, but they stop breathing because it's general anesthetic. <laughs> and then ketamine is a bit of a bronchodilator too. And I've, I've seen some case reports of people actually getting a lot better after ketamine. But again, I, I can't imagine sedating somebody that's having a hard time breathing unless you're doing it for another reason. So... Um, all right, mechanical ventilation, we kind of went through this again. Um, just be careful, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of problems, especially in asthma. So if you're doing any kind of mechanical ventilation, you gotta worry about barotrauma against restrictive lung disease. They can pop a pneumo pretty easily. Uh, and they get, because they have so much mucus, there can be a lot of mucus plugging, so you can, get, you can need pretty high airway pressures initially. This is actually, and they get, like we talked about earlier, they can get hypotension. This is, this is a pretty big deal, so don't, you know, you don't want to just intubate asthma guys for fun, right? This is, uh, they, they get really, really sick and can have a lot of complications from ventilation. So the strategy you want to use if, you're, if you do have to mechanically ventilate these people is use a really low rate, like 10, 12 per minute. Use a high flow rate so you can get all the, all the breath in quickly, okay? And then you can leave them more time to exhale. So if you're breathing 10 times per minute for them, that's every six seconds, right? Try and blow all that air in within the first two seconds and leave them four seconds to exhale and that should prevent air trapping. But you need to monitor their chest. If they're getting barrel chested, that's, that's a problem. You can take them off the ventilator and give them, let them exhale. Um, and you need to monitor for pneumothorax. The goal really is just an SAO2 of 90%. Okay? You don't have to get these people up to 100%. Don't be an overachiever. Okay? 90% is fine. This is, is one of the times when your ventilatory strategy is going to include permissive hypercarbia. So let them run PCO2s of 
PaCO2s of, I don't know, 40, 50%, just as long as they're ventilating well, because you don't want to, you don't want to destroy their lungs with the ventilator. So does that make sense? Any questions about that? I think we're about done here. Chronic treatment, you can use mast cell stabilizers like chromalin to prevent degranulation of mast cells. You can use anti-leukotrienes. Leukotrienes are one of the inflammatory meds, and they've got a couple of different kinds of that. And then inhaled corticosteroids, again, anybody that is not mild intermittent should be on inhaled corticosteroid. Okay. And then you're going to talk to some of our asthma specialists here, and they'll tell you you have no business starting this in the ER. I say that's crap. Okay. A lot of the people that we see in the ER, we are their only contact with the medical profession. Okay? They get follow-up 10 months down the road. So do the right thing for the patient. If they're, if they're using their albuterol three to six times a week, if they're having nighttime symptoms more than three or four times a month, start them on inhaled corticosteroid. Okay? That's, that's just good medical care. These people, just because they're poor, doesn't mean they don't deserve good medical care. So not everybody can get in to see an asthma specialist the next day. So, so I would have a low threshold for starting inhaled corticosteroids are safe. You know, they don't absorb a lot of it systemically, and they keep them out of trouble. We know that inhaled corticosteroids decrease asthma mortality and morbidity. Okay, that's one of the few things. All right, DISPO. So, all right, I just make sure I have good follow-up, and they've done some education. They know what, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and it's written down for them or their parents. All right. All right, sorry I ran a little over there. Any questions? All right. Thanks for paying attention.